Hello to all the folks joining us online. Thanks for tuning in this morning. We're glad that you're a part of our service. If you've got a Bible, I want you to take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 20th chapter. It feels like we've been living in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew for a long time, but this is the last part of this chapter. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Matthew that we've called from the beginning. Let's talk about Jesus. This is the 68th message in this sermon series so far. Message number 68, and we're talking this morning about the compassion of Jesus. Uh, Since I knew from the beginning that this was going to be a lengthy study, there are 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, I chose from the beginning to divide the Gospel up into different sections. You know that. The section we're in at this current time, I'm calling growing deeper, because what we see in this part of Matthew's gospel is Jesus teaching, challenging His disciples to grow deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling. He's showing them what it looks like to grow deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling. And this is a significant part of Matthew's gospel. In fact, the significance really began in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. I'll put that verse up on the screen. We talked about this some time ago, and then I've uh, Uh, reminded you of this a few times, but this is what Matthew says in chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And I told you from the beginning, and I'll remind you today, that that verse marked a shift in the ministry of Jesus, and that shift can be described like this. Up to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, He's directed most of His attention to the large crowds that are following Him, and He's given a little bit of His attention to His disciples. But from that verse on, there's a shift, and now moving forward, Jesus gives most of His attention to the disciples who follow Him and just a little bit of attention to the large crowds, even though, and we'll see this again today, the large crowds continue to follow Him. And the reason why this shift was made was because we're at a critical point in the ministry of Jesus, and He knows that His crucifixion is just ahead. He knows that we're just days literally away from His death and the disciples who are going to be given this commission at the end of Matthew's gospel to go into all the world and make other disciples, these disciples that are following Him, they're going to have to shoulder that load, and so He prepares them. And so what we see is some great teaching in this section of Matthew's gospel about what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven, about uh, how important it is to forgive others, about Uh, what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, about the generosity and the grace of God, uh, about marriage and divorce and remarriage. He's really teaching them about some important truths to help strengthen their faith. And so, it's a critical part of Jesus' ministry. But when we open our Bibles this weekend to Matthew chapter 20, and we read verses 29 through 34 like we're going to do in a moment, we come to a brief passage of Scripture that at first glance does not seem to fit into this section of the Gospels. It doesn't seem to fit in this section of the Gospel that's focused on preparing the disciples. It's the story of Jesus healing two blind beggars who were sitting beside the road in Jericho. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 20 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me and we'll look at that passage of Scripture this morning. It's a brief passage of Scripture. 
Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. You follow along as I read. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. See, the large crowd is still there. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Verse 34 says, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always, each and every week, ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's just start in verse 29 and work our way through the text. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29 says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Here's what I want you to understand, and you might even want to write this somewhere in the margin of your Bible next to this text. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And the significance of that is this. He's finished his ministry in Galilee, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem. But this is not just another trip to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. That's the significance of this text. In fact, if I look down at my Bible, I've got my Bible open to Matthew chapter 20, and I see the beginning of chapter 21 there, and I look at the chapter heading for Matthew chapter 21, the chapter heading is the triumphal entry. And if you know anything at all about the life of Jesus, you know anything at all about the timeline of his life, you know that the triumphal entry is the beginning of the final act of Jesus' life because as we encounter Jesus in this text this morning, he's leaving Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem, listen to me, for the final time because he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And so this visit to the city of Jericho was also significant because it was the last time that he would be there. The city of Jericho is a place of great biblical history. When I went to the Holy Land in 2014, and there are probably some of you here in the audience who went with me on that trip, we didn't visit the city of Jericho, not on that trip. If you remember, we saw the city of Jericho from the buses we were in in the distance as one day was coming to an end, but we didn't actually visit the city of Jericho. When I went back to the Holy Land in 2017, and there are probably some of you here who were with me on that trip, we visited the city of Jericho. In fact, this is my favorite picture from the city of Jericho. That's my wife, Sandy, riding a camel in the city of Jericho. If you're going with me later this year to the Holy Land, we'll be visiting the city of Jericho. That's something that you can look forward to. It's a pretty incredible city. Uh, we read in the Old Testament book of Joshua about how God led the Israelites to overcome the fortified city of Jericho. Remember, Jericho was known for its big, big walls, but God supernaturally led them to destroy the walls and to conquer the city of Jericho without ever really even fighting, uh, which was significant for them in finally taking possession of the promised land. In that same book of Joshua, we read about a woman who lived in the city of Jericho named Rahab, she was a prostitute, but she showed great courage and kindness to spies from the children of Israel who had come into the city to just kind of spy out the city and spy out the area there. When they were discovered, she hid them in her home, and as a result of her kindness and her courage, but mostly the grace of God, she was rewarded by God and given 
a place in the genealogy of Jesus. We began the study of the Gospel of Matthew back in November of 2016 by, by, uh, with a message that talked about the genealogy or the family line of Jesus. And Rahab, this prostitute, this woman who wasn't Jewish herself, found her way because of the grace of God into the family line of Jesus. And so there was a lot of significance, historical significance to the city of Jericho. And I want you to just think about something with me for a moment. Don't you think that Jesus in his humanity, remember the Bible says that Jesus was God in human flesh. Literally, that means he was 100% God, but 100% man at the same time. Don't you think that Jesus in his humanity was taking everything in, in the city of Jericho? It's the last time he would ever be there in this earthly life. And I'm sure that as he approached the city, his mind had to be filled with all of these thoughts about the historical significance of Jericho. But beyond the historical significance, there was personal significance for Jesus as well. I can remember standing in the city of Jericho back in the fall of 2017 and looking to the south to the mountains and the cliffs that rise above the city and feeling deeply moved because I knew that that was the place, somewhere in that area was the place where Jesus began His ministry. That was the place where He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That was the place where the devil came and tempted Him on three different occasions. That's where He went through a time of preparation for His ministry. In fact, some of you who were with me on that 2017 trip to Jericho or to the Holy Land will remember that in the city of Jericho, we ate lunch that day at the Mount of Temptation restaurant. <laughs> And when we finished our lunch, we walked the steps up to the roof of the building that housed the restaurant, and we looked out over the city of Jericho. You can even see the, the tell that is the ruins of the old walls of the old city, and you can look to the south and see those mountains and those cliffs where Jesus was tempted. So you can just imagine, friends, the many things that must have flooded the mind of Jesus as he visited Jericho for the last time. Well, we begin our text in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29 with the information that as he was leaving Jericho, there was a large crowd that followed him. If you look at the Gospels as a whole and you harmonize them, you'll also understand that there wasn't just a large crowd surrounding Jesus as he left the city of Jericho, which is where our text is, but there was also a large crowd of people that followed Jesus as he entered the city of Jericho. You read about that in Luke chapter 19. And the reason why I bring that up is because this is a great story. Some of you will remember there was one particular man in that crowd who had a difficult time seeing Jesus. And do you remember what he did? He climbed up in a sycamore tree to get a better look. I wonder if anybody remembers his name. His name was Zacchaeus. We read his story in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. What a great, great story that was. Why do you think there was so much excitement when Jesus entered the city of Jericho? Why was there such a buzz? Why was there such a large crowd surrounding him and the disciples upon their entrance? Well, I'm sure it was uh, for the same reason there that it was pretty much everywhere he went because people had heard about the supernatural things that Jesus had done. They'd heard about the miracles he performed. In particular, what had to have captured the attention of those first century people were the supernatural healings that Jesus had been involved in, how he had taken people who had no hope and given them hope again. 
not far from the city of Jericho. In fact, as Jesus leaves Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and halfway between Jericho and Jerusalem, there's a city called Bethany. And not long before, this is again when you look at the Gospels as a whole, as a harmony, and you put them together, not long before Jesus' journey into Jericho, which was a stopping point before he went to Jerusalem, for the final time. He had entered the city of Bethany for a specific purpose. He had dear friends that lived in the city of Bethany. Their names were Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And not long before this, Jesus had traveled to Bethany because his dear friend Lazarus, he had heard, was sick. But if you remember the story, when Jesus got there, Lazarus was already dead. And Jesus, this story is told in John chapter 11, Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and he wept. The Bible says he wept. John chapter 11, that's where the verse is. It says, Jesus wept. People say, what's the shortest verse in the New Testament? Well, everybody can memorize that, right? John 11, Jesus wept. I can't remember the specific verse off the top of my head, but Jesus wept outside the tomb and then he called Lazarus forth and he rose him from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days, friends. Four days when this happened. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there was anybody in that entire region that didn't know about that miracle? You think there was anybody in that part of the country who hadn't heard the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Why was there such a large crowd surrounding Jesus? Why was there so much excitement when he entered into the city? I think that's a question that's easily answered. And so he entered the city. The people wanted to see him. And in particular, Zacchaeus wanted to see him. We know the story of how he climbed up in a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus would have been public enemy number one in Jericho, at least among the Jews, because he was a tax collector. That means he had basically sold his soul to the Romans, and now under the protection of the Roman government, he collected taxes for them, but also under their protection, he was able to extort money from his countrymen, and so the people hated him. He had a deep need in his heart, and he wanted to see Jesus. And here's the deal, Jesus wanted to see him as well. And so at some point when Jesus entered into the city of Jericho, he looked up in that sycamore tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you need to come down because I need to go and stay at your house today. And that's what happened. Later that night while he was having dinner with Zacchaeus and his friends, which were tax collectors and sinners, and the Jews were on the outside of Zacchaeus' home muttering among themselves because Jesus had gone to be a guest of sinners, Zacchaeus' life was changed for all eternity because in the middle of the dinner, he stands up and says, I'm going to give away half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, which was probably everyone, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount that I took. And that caused Jesus to say these words in Luke 19, 9 and 10, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And that's a deeply moving thing to me to connect Zacchaeus' life to where we are in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29 as Jesus is leaving Jericho because as Jesus is on his way out of the city of Jericho and he set his face toward Jerusalem where he's going for the very last time in his life because he's going there to die. And listen to me, friends. He's a six-hour walk away from Jerusalem. When you read Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29... Jesus is a six-hour walk away from the beginning of the end of his earthly life. But he still had time to notice somebody who was in deep need of God's grace. Because remember what we read in the text? 
He is a compassionate man. And so the next morning, while Zacchaeus is running around the city of Jericho, settling all of his accounts because of the pledge that he made the night before, Jesus is walking out of the city, surrounded by a large crowd, and he encounters two blind men sitting by the road. They were beggars. They were probably sitting in the same place alongside the road that they sat every single day of their lives as blind men. And the very first thing we notice about them is their desperation. Write that down next to number one if you'd like to take notes. Blindness was a big problem in Jesus' day for multiple reasons, not just people born blind, but people who somehow became blind later in their lives. And when you were blind in the first century, unless you had family to care for you, you really only had one option for survival, and that was to become a beggar, which is, again, why these two men were sitting by the roadside. And so Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20 says that when they heard Jesus was going by, this is what the verse says, they shouted, Lord Son of David, have mercy on us. And I see desperation in every one of those words. First, I see desperation in the word that Matthew uses here for shouted. He said they shouted. It's the Greek word kradzo. You can see the word on the screen behind me, literally translated. It means to scream, but the definition alone doesn't give justice to the word. You have to understand the word in the different contexts in which it's used in the New Testament. It's the same word used in the New Testament to describe the screeching and the screaming of people who are demon-possessed. Just imagine in your mind what it would be like, the terror and the sound of someone who was possessed by a demon spirit. It's the same word used in the New Testament to describe the cry of a mother during the pains of childbirth. Some of you know that firsthand. These two men were screaming at the top of their lungs. I see desperation also in the words that they shouted. They said, have mercy on us. It's a cry of desperation because they know, listen to me, friends, these two men have been blind long enough that they know at this point that Jesus is their only hope to ever be able to see. There was no medical alternative left for these men, and they know that they knew that if Jesus could do something as significant as raise a man from the dead who had been dead for four days, that surely he could heal them of their blindness. But they also knew that if somehow Jesus passed by them without hearing them and without seeing them and without paying attention to them, that all hope was gone. And so we see desperation in every single part of this. And let me just add something additional to the fact that they cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. I see a genuine sense of humility in those words. And I say that because they weren't crying out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we got a raw deal from God. We didn't deserve this. We deserve better than this, so you need to make it right. They didn't cry out and say, this is unfair. You need to do something about it. They just said, have mercy on us. They're desperate. They're loud. They're not going to be ignored. But at the same time, they're not making demands. They're not acting like Jesus owes them anything. In nothing but complete desperation, they're crying out saying, have mercy on us. They're just desperate. 
I'm going to pause here for a minute, and I'm going to say something that I genuinely believe deep in my heart, but I'm going to say it at the risk of being misunderstood, and I'm going to say it at the risk of offending some of you. I talk to a lot of people who are angry with God, and they're angry with God because of the bad experiences of their lives. They're angry with God because of the bad things that have happened to them in life. They're angry with God because of the bad hand that they feel like they've been dealt in life or the bad turn of events in life, or on and on and on. And oftentimes, they're so angry with God that they walk away from their faith. They're so disappointed with God that they walk away from their faith. I feel compelled to mention two things. I don't have time to go into detail, and this requires a lot more explanation than what I'm going to give, but I feel compelled to say two things about this. They're not going to be on your screen, you want to, might want to write down anything that I say here in this moment. The first one is this. Listen, God never promises us that we won't experience bad things in this life. You can read your Bible from cover to cover. You can start in the book of Genesis, and you can go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, and you can't find any place in the Bible where God promises us that we won't experience bad things in life. In fact, friends, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know the Bible says just the opposite. I'm thinking of a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John in the 16th chapter. Jesus is spending his last precious hours with his disciples, and he's trying to prepare them for what's ahead. And at the end of a time of teaching and sharing with them, he says, this is John chapter 16 and verse 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. He goes on to say, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the, word, the world. Now, the word that Jesus uses for trouble there in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word flipsis, flipsis. And literally translated, it means a pressing together. And so just get into your mind the idea of a vice, and you place an object in a vice, and you tighten the vice, and both sides of the vice press and press and press against whatever the object is to the point of destroying it or at least damaging it, affecting it deeply. Same word is oftentimes translated in the New Testament as affliction or distress. And Jesus says, this is what you will have in this world. He doesn't promise us that we won't experience bad things. If you're somehow living under the delusion that because you're a Christian, no bad thing should ever happen to you, then you couldn't be more wrong. That's not the promise of the Scripture. Nowhere. And anybody who tries to teach you uh, that Christianity is some life of nothing but blessing and abundance is not teaching you the truth. The second thing that I feel compelled to say is this. Not only does the Bible never tell us that we'll never experience bad things in this life, but the Bible also teaches us in a variety of different ways that none of us deserve anything from God. None of us. The key part of that is the word deserve. None of us deserves anything from God. 
We talked about this in detail a few weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the workers in the vineyard and we saw the story of the landowner who went into the marketplace and hired workers to work in his vineyard for a day and some began to work at six in the morning and finished at six at night, but he went back to the, vin- to the, to the marketplace at different times throughout the day and hired more workers. He even went back at what the Bible said was the 11th hour and hired workers, which means they worked for one single hour. Then at the end of the day, when it came time to settle up with the workers, he paid everyone the same amount of money. Remember the story? And those who'd worked for the 12 hours, who'd borne the brunt of the work in the heat of the day, they were upset, they were angry, and they grumbled. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. You ever heard that before? And the landowner, who in the story represents God, he said, friend, I haven't done anything wrong. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? We have a generous God. The truth is, at the end of the day, He is more generous to us than any of us deserve because none of us deserve, deserve anything from God. And so when trouble comes into our life, when our lives are pressed together and we feel affliction and we feel distress in our lives, which is a reality of all of our lives, some of us will feel it on larger scales than others, but all of us will feel it when it comes into our lives, then we need to have the the depth of faith to stand strong under that because while God never promised us that we wouldn't experience bad things in life, He did promise us that He would never leave us as we experience bad things in life, and He did promise us that He has the ability, if we trust Him, to take whatever it is that's going on in our life and ultimately work it for His good and somehow, even though it seems unbelievable in the moment, to work it for, for His glory and to work it for our good. He can take whatever bad thing and ultimately work it for His glory and for our good. But listen to me, you've got to have a depth of faith to be able to do that. And so to believe that and to trust that and to live by that and hang on to that. And so here's my, here's my word of encouragement. Hey, let's live deeper lives. Let's move past immaturity in our faith. Let's make a commitment to really knowing and understanding the truth of God's Word because it's the truth of God's Word. It's the immutable, life-giving, unchanging truth of God's Word that sustains us through the difficult times of life. I'm so tired of Christians who have an anecdotal Christianity or a bumper sticker Christianity. They're good with God as long as God is good to them, but as soon as things turn, man, they are out the door. The Bible never promises us that we won't experience bad things in life. I look at these two beggars who are by the side of the road, and what are they asking for? They're asking for the only thing that any of us have the right to ask for. They're asking for mercy. Have mercy on us. The second thing I see in this encounter with these two men is the word determination. Write that down next to number two. Back in Matthew chapter 20, verse 31 says, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Isn't it interesting that these two men were so loud that Matthew said the crowd had to quiet them? And it was a large crowd. That's what we're told in verse 29. My guess is, you know, first, obviously, they were screaming. We already saw that. The word for shouted is krodzo. It means to scream. I told you about that word. But More than that, my guess is the reason why the crowd told them to be quiet was because they were beggars, and for the most part, listen, if you've ever spent any time traveling internationally, you ever been on a mission trip to a third world country or something like that, and you've been around beggars, beggars are annoying. They're incredibly irritating and annoying. 
I've been places where there have been lots of beggars, never any worse than when I've been in India. Been to India three times. And you go to a large marketplace in India and there are so many beggars, it's unbelievable. And they're aggressive, they're right up in your face and they're holding their children up and they're going like this asking for food and, and it's a pitiful, pitiful, heartbreaking scene and you're there for a minute and you're thinking, where do I need to go to get more money? But after you've been there a few days and you go to the marketplace, you know what? You don't even notice them, they're still there. They're still just as aggressive. It's just as pitiful, but you're not even noticing. And that's probably the way it was with these two men who were sitting by the side of the road. They were beggars. They'd been sitting there probably every day of their lives as blind men. And the crowd was trying to tell them to be quiet because the crowd was basically saying, you don't count. You don't matter. Just keep your mouth shut. You don't exist. But they did. And there was some depth to who they were. And I say that because of, of what they say. We already talked about how they said, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They cried out in desperation. But there's another significance here to what they said. When they called Jesus Lord, Son of David, they were acknowledging Jesus for exactly who he was. And that is that he was the Messiah because Son of David is the most common term for the Messiah found in the Scriptures. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel in chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. We don't have time to read the words. And a promise that God made to King David about establishing his throne and his line forever. And so son of David became the title or the designation for the Messiah. And that's who Jesus was. He was the son of David because his earthly father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, both came from the line and the family of David. He was the Messiah. We'll see this term again used next week when we look at the triumphal entry because uh, the beginning of Jesus's trip to Jerusalem was so wonderful with the triumphal entry that he rode in the city on the back of a donkey and the, they threw branches on the ground and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. They acknowledged him in that moment as the Messiah. But this just reminds me again of the determination of these men. Lord, son of David, Messiah, we need you. The third thing I see about these two blind men is what we'll just call deliverance. Write that down next to number three. Matthew chapter 20, verses 32 through 34 says, Jesus stopped. So Jesus heard them. How many of you know that's what Jesus does? He hears us. No matter what kind of noise or distractions going around, that there's nothing ever too significant that it causes Jesus not to be able to hear our cry. And so verse 32 says, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Here's an interesting thing about this uh, text. When it says receive their sight, when I read that phrase, receive their sight in my NIV Bible, those three words, receive their sight, come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament. It's the Greek word anablepo, and literally translated, it means to see again. And I think that's interesting because to me, I read that, and it makes me think that these men weren't blind from birth. These men had lost their sight. I can't imagine the pain or the difficulty of not being able to see, of being blind. 
But it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you would have a different view of this. It seems to me that to have your sight and then lose it would be worse than to never have your sight at all. And I'll reference that from my own life because, you know, when I went through my head and neck cancer treatment and I had all that radiation, it did so much damage to the soft tissue in my neck and in my mouth in particular. It did a lot of damage to my tongue and it destroyed my taste buds. But that doesn't mean I don't remember how, ta how food tastes. And I can walk in the kitchen, and my wife, Sandy's always been a, just a wonderful, incredible cook, and I can smell what she's making, and immediately I remember in my mind what it tastes like. But when it goes into my mouth, it's something completely different. Now, the good news is, is over seven years, I feel like I'm starting at least to get a little bit of my taste back. I would say maybe about 25% of my taste back now, but there are still some things that I can't taste. But what do you think would be worse? To have never been able to taste food or to have been able to taste it, lose that ability, and never have it again? No wonder they were so desperate. No wonder they were so determined no wonder they were so focused on Jesus to deliver them from this blindness. And so that's what he did. He had compassion on them. He put his hands on them and he healed them. And immediately they were able to see. And the fourth and final word that I see in the story is the word dedication. Because the latter part of verse 34 says, immediately they received their sight and followed him and followed him. Now, I want you to look up here at me for a moment. I want to tell you something. This same story is told in both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. So it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. I don't have time to explain to you what that means. The gospel of John is a very different gospel than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But if you were to read these stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that there are details that are different in each of the stories. Primarily, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, only one man is identified as a blind man who was healed. That doesn't mean there weren't two. This is not an uncommon thing for the gospel writers to tell the same story with a little bit of different details. It's easily explained. But when I look at this story in Mark chapter 10 and verse 52, it says this, then Jesus said to him, because only one man is talked about in Mark's gospel, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. That's from the New King James Version, by the way. When I read that, it's clear to me that one of the unmistakable results of having a life-changing personal encounter with Jesus is his way becomes your way. These two men had an unforgettable, life-changing, personal encounter with Jesus, and when it was over, they followed him. What else would they do? What else would anybody do when you've had a life-changing, personal encounter with Jesus? What else would you do except follow him for the rest of your life? Well, Brian and Fred can come and we'll bring this to a close. There's one final part of the story that I want to mention. We've already read it a couple of times, but it stands out to me. I think it's so significant. It's the very first part of verse 34 where it says, Jesus had compassion on them. After Jesus heard their cries and he, he engaged them in conversation, he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want our sight. Verse 34 begins by saying, Jesus had compassion 
compassion on them because that's who Jesus is. I want you to listen to me really close this morning, especially if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your life in some way. Maybe you're dealing with some bad experience. Maybe you've been dealt a bad hand. Maybe something seems unfair to you in your life. Maybe it's something personal. Maybe it's in the life of somebody that you love dearly. I want you to know that no one, no one cares about you more than Jesus does. No one. And that means there's no hurt, there's no disappointment, and there's no loss that you can experience that Jesus doesn't understand. But it's not just, friends, it's not just that he understands it. There's no hurt and there's no disappointment and there's no loss that you can experience that Jesus doesn't feel himself. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's a six-hour walk away from Jerusalem. And when he gets there, even though things begin really well with the triumphal entry, it's just a matter of days until he's betrayed, arrested, falsely accused and tried, beaten, brutalized, spit on, mocked, and suspended between the heaven and earth he spoke into being on a Roman cross where he died as the most innocent man that ever lived. And the reason why? No one cares about you more than Jesus does. Jesus. 